Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The old traditional way of go to school, get a good job, go to university, all that kind of stuff. It's not the way we do things these days. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way, but there are sometimes some smarter ways of doing stuff. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with writer, TV host and founder of Your Property Empire, Chris Gray to talk about how he managed to retire at age 31 by simply getting started in property. We'll learn the importance of mindset and reward in property and the property tips and tricks he's learned so you can apply it too. Retiring from his career at 31, Chris Gray has no strict routine in his daily life. Gray finding himself doing a number of things on any given day. It changes day by day and, and that's basically how I wanted my life. Mondays, I'm always um, kind of recovering and doing Sky News and then the other days, quite often it could be in boats, um, supercars, choppers, uh, um, having meetings. I just love meeting people and learning stuff and uh, part of my time speaking to clients as well and putting deals together but yeah, pretty much every day is completely different. Despite this lack of daily routine, a big part of Gray's life is educating others about property and how he was able to retire. I basically started investing at 21 or 22 rather and uh, semi-retired out of Deloitte, the accounting firm at 31. I then basically started teaching people what I'd done because everyone said, oh, how come you managed to retire early? With a lifestyle deviating from the norm, he shares that while he's able to live comfortably, he does have a different perspective to most people when it comes to his own property. Overall riding kind of thing about me is more the lifestyle. So I've always stood up and pretty well known for having, having the lifestyle um, of playing with all these toys and not having to work for a living. And I guess that's where I've got a lot of followers because then people aspire, or some people aspire to have that kind of lifestyle as well. But the basis is of everything is I make all my money from property. So even though I've got a business, the majority of my money I actually make from uh, buying, owning my own properties and the properties increasing. And I guess I'm also known as being a bit of a contrarian. So, so the, my philosophy on money is complete opposite to most other people. So to give you some examples, so I've got, say, 14 properties roughly worth about $15 million, mainly in Sydney and some over in the UK, but I, don't, I still don't own my own home. Expanding on this, Gray explains why he chooses to rent despite having a $15 million portfolio that would easily allow him to buy a house, a dream most individuals struggle to achieve. I've got a wife, I've got two kids at um, seven and eight that are at school, so we've got a, a traditional kind of um, family, um, family unit. 
but we don't aspire to own our own home. And if we did own our own home, then we'd never pay a cent off it. Um, again, I've, I've mentioned that I've got a business, but I've got no staff, I've got no office. And so having that contrarian mindset is all part of this wealth creation thing that if you want supersonic cars and boats and choppers and big houses and the rest of it, sure, you can just go and buy them, but there's a lot cleverer ways of doing it, kind of like renting or syndicated ownership or buying second-hand cars rather than brand new. And I guess it all comes together, but the ultimate basis is, is yeah, the wealth creation is through property. With a mindset quite different to the usual, Gray wrote and published two books sharing his knowledge regarding property, one being similar to that of Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek. So when Tim wrote the book, The 4-Hour uh, the Workweek, about a year before, I'd actually written a book called How to Turn Your Weekdays into Weekends. So I had to work two days a week and have five days off versus the other way around. Despite Ferris's book being more popular than his own, Gray explains that at its basis, its message is the same. A much better title and a much better book and he's sold billions of copies. So, but I guess the mindset's pretty much the same. And so again, going through his book, I guess I've done a lot of those things in terms of outsourcing, have virtual assistants or personal assistants and basically just trying to find a cleverer way of doing stuff rather than doing things traditionally almost like kind of Robert Kiyosaki days of Rich Dad Poor Dad, is the old traditional way of go to school, get a good job, go to university, all that kind of stuff. It's it's not the way we do things these days. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way, but there are sometimes some smarter ways of doing stuff. Talking about his life prior to property, Gray explains why he skipped tertiary education and went straight into the workforce instead. I just did things differently because I thought people create money from wages and then get into wealth creation to try and then build build wealth. So why not? I kind of did it in reverse and I thought, why not concentrate on building wealth straight away? And so in Deloitte, they found it really hard to motivate me because I wasn't motivated by money like most other people or bonuses because I was making so much money from property. If they paid me a five or 10 grand bonus, it didn't make any difference. Mm. And so, so this is the problem is especially the people that are really up at the top end of the ladder, they just do not have any time whatsoever to concentrate on personal finance. So sure, they've got a paid off home, sure, they've got money in the bank and money in super, but it's nothing compared to what they could have uh, if they actually just leveraged it, even 50% or something. Uh, and so that's why one of the chapters in my book is it's, it's called, it's not about what you earn, it's what you do with your money that counts. Mm-hmm. Because I saw some really young, almost PAs that had four or five properties and they had more than the partners that were earning maybe half a million, a million bucks because the PA knew that she was going to be poor because she maybe only had 50 or 60 grand. And so she knew she had to work hard at a personal wealth. Whereas someone on a high income, they automatically assume they're going to be wealthy. And how he figured out the secret about how to achieve and create wealth through various means. What I worked out then is, is, if you buy, say, like Monopoly, all of those greenhouses, call those million-dollar Bondi two-bedroom units with parking, lots of people want those, so the rent returns are pretty high. So normally it's around 4 or 5%. But then I worked out that 5 or $10 million homes, not many people can afford to rent them because anyone that can afford to rent them would always buy because there's a perception that only poor people rent. Mm. And so what I worked out about 10 years ago is whatever I could afford to buy – I could rent somewhere three or four times more expensive for the same kind of money. And so that's why I don't rent my own home these days because 
I can rent something very expensive that's only got a yield of 1% or 2%, but then all of my properties I'll rent out and get a 4 or 5%. He adds that he's creating through wealth that he's able to live the lifestyle he does now. I used the equity in one of those to, uh, to buy a Porsche. And again, the, the thought process with that was, was that I couldn't afford a Porsche on a 30-year loan, but oh, sorry, on a, a three-year car loan, but I could afford a second-hand Porsche on a 30-year uh, mortgage by effectively pulling equity out and using the equity to buy the Porsche. And give back to charitable causes as well. Back in about 2008, I climbed uh, Kilimanjaro and it was $50,000 each which obviously is a lot of money. It was a, mainly a donation to charity. But the kind of people that would go to that are people that can afford to either raise $50,000 or write a check for $50,000. So again, it's, a lot of the time people say that the average or your wealth will be the average of 10 people that are closest to you that you hang around. And so that's what I do is I hang around entrepreneurs and wealthy people and they hang around climbing up mountains and in supercars and car days and boat days and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's where my target audience is, which, wow. is uh, which is good fun. Always wanting to live a life by his own rules, Gray goes back to his childhood to share his interest in the investing world, actually stemming from an experience he had as a teenager. Grew up back in uh, North London and... I finished school at uh, at 18, got a job as a courier in London. I, I just loved driving, so even though I didn't earn any money, I think I actually was more in debt after I finished working than I was when I started. But I guess how I got into property was I came to Australia backpacking for three or four months, had absolutely no money, uh, lived in the backpackers in Manly Beach in, uh, in Sydney. But even though I had no money and I worked seven days a week, you could still go down to the beach for five or six hours, do a day's work, and then still go out drinking. And um, it's just an amazing lifestyle. So even if you had no money, you'd have an amazing lifestyle in Australia. And I went back to the UK. My mum actually gave me a curfew and she said, you've got to be back by, uh, by midnight. And I said, mum, look, I've travelled all the way around the world. I'm Surely I can get back from the local pub. But she said, no, it's my house, my rules, and you've got to be back by midnight. And that was the catalyst because I'd seen what it was like to, to leave home and to be in better places. That so that was my catalyst to push me into property Whereas I guess a lot of my friends hadn't had that backpacking experience and hadn't seen what it was like to, to have your own apartment or, or to live outside from home. And so um, I guess they didn't have the same catalyst that I did. While his parents' strict rules definitely was a catalyst in his property journey, he shares that they were also the reason he was able to get started in property. My dad was a heart physician, my mum was a nurse and so they were very much in, into the church and the community and so they were very non-materialistic. They were, obviously, they came from a, a pretty wealthy family um, because my dad was a doctor or a high-income family but they never had any interest in those material kind of things. I mean, that, they gave us a good head start with property so we had a, a property deposit so at 22 I earned £10,000, so about twenty twenty five thousand 25000 Aussie. Mm. And I had a deposit, I think, of about ten or 15, I think maybe £10,000 in those days. And basically, I, I just worked the numbers. So I looked at what I could afford, which is normally three times your income. So I could afford a thirty or £40,000 um, place, which even in those days was a pretty run-down, crappy one-bedroom unit. Um, I then started looking at three-bedroom houses in the best part of town, even though I couldn't afford them, and I fell in love with those kind of things. 
And I basically set myself a goal and said, right, I want this property. And it was one for £100,000. And basically, long story short, what I worked out is, first of all, I could buy that for 80000 because the guy was pretty keen to sell and I wasn't involved in the chain. So as a first home buyer, kind of, it was quite attractive because um, you, you could basically sell it on the property within uh, five or six weeks, so it's nice and clean. And I basically went to the bank and through my dad's guarantee, I said, look, if I buy a 30 or 40 thousand pound place, I'm going to be mortgaged for life. So I'm going to have no money. I can't afford to go out. Whereas if I can afford to get a seven times mortgage and get this three bedroom house, I can rent two rooms out to two mates. And in those days, the rents were around 10 or 12%. That would actually pay the whole of my mortgage off so I could actually live for free. Fantastic. So I then took it to my dad as more of a business case to say, look, dad, I need some help if you can. I'm not after your money. I just need to try and get a guarantee for the bank because the three-bedroom house is going to be free, whereas the one-bedroom unit is going to cost me a fortune. And I just had this kind of mentality. So my school base is very much, I look at normal problems. I translate it into basic numbers, and the basic numbers tell me a different story to what the emotional choice that our parents and our grandparents and society tell us what to do. Sharing his reason for moving to Australia and getting started in a property career, Gray describes the lifestyle he had when working at a dot-com back in 2000. Now, I enjoyed it with young people. We went from like 10 people to about 130 within a few months. Wow. Um, I was working six days a week and then sleeping on the seventh. And I made some money through the dot-com, but basically after it and after the, um, the GFC came about and obviously the shares all collapsed, I then said, well, I don't care how much money I earn. I'm not enjoying the Australian uh, kind of weekends and the lifestyle and the rest of it. And that's when I said, well, to me, life isn't purely about money and I want to live the life. And this is what I came to Australia for. And so that's when I left. And then I started uh, actually into recruitment and uh, got into uh, Deloitte through recruitment, kind of interviewing CFOs. But that's when I really learned that... um, yeah, you've got to live the life. And I met so many unhappy people that hated their jobs uh, through kind of recruitment and interviewing people that that's when I really learned then that there's more to life than just working in money. It was during these interviews that Gray actually discovered that there were a lot of people who had a lot of income but were very time poor. A fact that inspired him to look further into property. My recruitment role then, I used to have to try and find the candidates. So I, the financial controllers and the finance directors to put into some of Deloitte's clients as a, as a recruitment firm. And so I basically had to interview 10 people a week. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't too uh, kind of uh, time performing on me. Mm. But over two years, then that's kind of 100 weeks. So that's about 1,000 people that I interviewed. And most of these guys could do their jobs. They were, they were very successful people. So more the interview process was more getting to know about them personally. And quite often we talk about money and houses and all the rest of it because I had a personal interest around that. And and this is the thing that I learned was a lot of the people I met that were suddenly in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, they were struggling to get contracting jobs because they were competing against a 30-year-old backpacker from the UK or Ireland that was maybe getting 30 or 40 bucks an hour. And they were arguing, look, I'm a CFO. I used to be on two, three, four hundred thousand and maybe one or two hundred bucks an hour. And so I'm a bargain to to a firm that wants to hire these people. And 
I learned it was a very ageist uh, kind of workplace in Australia, and, and probably the same in the UK, in that a lot of these companies, they, they would rather get the fresh blood in at 30 or 40 bucks an hour, even if someone with 40 years experience would do the same job and maybe do it better, because they wanted to mould the young people and train them, whereas someone that's done something for 40 years is maybe more set in their ways. And so I suddenly thought like an accounting job is a job for life, but I suddenly turned, turned out and realized it wasn't. And so suddenly a lot of these people that had their big expensive homes in Mosman, they had kids at private school, they might have a, uh, a wife kind of out shopping or at the gym all day, expensive cars, overseas holidays. And suddenly these guys were battling to get 30 or 40 bucks an hour at the same time. So that's when over that period of two years, I realized that I definitely didn't want a career and at the same time, I think I was earning about $80,000 to $60,000 after tax. It was this realization along with his move to Australia that led Gray not only to a reassessment of his life but to the prospect of building a portfolio. I guess it was really just when I came to Australia at 27, then I needed to buy a property to live in because that was always the, the done thing. Um, and so I guess I then just started building up from there. And again, it just kind of happened by chance in a way. So I wasn't aspiring to be a big property investor, but I guess I, I bought the first one in 99 uh, for 360 in Coogee. Everyone said, oh, it's all going to collapse after the Olympics. You're absolutely mad. I mean, now that property's worth 1.1 or 1.2 or something. And then for some reason, I was going to buy another one in Tamarama. And I think maybe I I just started sort of accumulating stuff and rather than sell it, just refinance and then buy the next one. So again, I I don't think it really hit me till about 30 or 31 till I actually kind of gave up work. And that's all, maybe a year before I gave up work. And um, I just happened to be doing something and it just kind of fell into place in a way. So it wasn't necessarily a really defined goal that, that I've set in my, um, in my 20s and 30s. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Chris Gray's property journey to find out about the wins in his property investing journey. So I had six, six properties all rising by 100000 a year for a couple of years. So I was making six hundred grand a year from property investing, doing nothing and paying no tax on it and earning sixty grand from Deloitte. Contrastingly, about the time he almost lost it all. I was probably almost in negative equity because they, I, was, I was highly geared, maybe 90 or 100% geared anyway. And then the market kind of fell off a bit. I'd really pushed the limit massively. I was down to probably my last 10 or $100 or something like that. And I was almost wishing on heart attack. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. With a booming property market in 2003 to 2004, Gray's properties ended up rising in value, solidifying his decision to go into property full-time. The property market was really booming in, this was about 2003, 2004. Mm. So I had six, six properties all rising by 100,000 a year for a couple of years. So I was making 600 grand a year from property investing, doing nothing and paying no tax on it and earning 60 grand from Deloitte. <laughs> and this is where the whole puzzle kind of came together if I can earn 600 grand for doing nothing versus 60 grand for 
for working a 40-hour week, then I'd rather take the 600 grand. Of course, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> I think any person yeah. in the right mind would I, definitely. I'm not a great accountant, <laughs> but I was a good enough accountant to work that one out. However, despite the success he's had so far and the $15 million property portfolio he managed to grow, Gray shares that getting the properties wasn't always a smooth process. My biggest issue that I've had with investing is I invest too much. So for most people, they don't get off their backside and do anything. I've always been uh, too far the other way. So in the UK, you could get into debt at 18. I got into debt at 17 and um, my debt got, just got bigger and bigger and uh, Again, taking on that first mortgage of seven times your income versus three times. So my mortgage repayments were more than my wages before tax, let alone after tax. So I've always kind of got used to debt from an early age. But look, in probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, I was probably almost in negative equity because I was was highly geared, maybe 90 or 100% geared anyway, and then the market kind of fell off a bit. And so it's... it's, um, kind of 50-50 whether my properties would have actually um, paid off my debt. But again, going to see the accountants and getting all the good advice that I got and from people like Angus Rain from Rain and Horn, he was a very, very generous guy that um, gave me a lot of his time to help me. And, and a lot of these guys said, look, Chris, you've got to hang on to your portfolio. If you sell your portfolio, you're going to end up with no assets and you'll still have some debt and you'll never be able to repay that debt. Whereas whether you beg, borrow, or steal, or obviously maybe not steal, but um, get five jobs and just hang on. Because I think at the time I had about three and a half million in property. And all you need is to get 10% growth and you suddenly make $350,000 and suddenly all your problems are over. And so I think in the, the age from probably 30 to 40, there was various different times when I'd really pushed the limit massively I was down to probably my last 10 or $100 or something like that. And I was almost wishing on heart attacks to claim on my insurance and hopefully survive the heart attacks to then get the payout <laughs> to try and get myself out of a rut. And it, it was very, very tough. So at times I've had years of sleepless nights. So this is the, the downside. Wow. So it, there, it's not all positive And a lot of the speakers and people say, oh, it's so easy and it feels easy in hindsight. But at the times... And it's all my own doing, and, and I did it knowingly, and I was willing to take those risks to then have the upside on the uh, on when the market did move. But look, there was some a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of stress and stuff like that because I was pushing the limits um, beyond what most other people would do. Regardless of these risks, most things have gone well. Gray sharing some of his favorite life-changing moments in terms of property. From even from... Owning that first property, I remember coming down the stairs and I had had a uh, nothing in the house whatsoever because I had no money, no furniture, but I had a 100-pound um, IKEA futon mattress and a case of warm beers. And in the UK, we, we used to drink warm beers, so you didn't even need the fridge. Just uh, room temperature beers was, was fine. But that was one of my proudest moments. Um, I think refinancing the Porsche, again, was another massive one. And I didn't... I didn't know what I'd done. I didn't know about refinancing and I did a joint venture with my dad. I I didn't know what joint ventures was, but I did one. I just do logical things and then I've learned what they're kind of called afterwards. Um, I think the day I retired from work at Deloitte and I sent an email to everyone saying, I'm retiring, I'm no longer going to be on this email is, again, a very, very proud moment. I mean, today I'm sitting in my 
I guess, home office, looking at the um, the opera house and the Harbour Bridge, thinking, I never, ever thought I could have this kind of lifestyle if I look back 20 or 30 years into my kind of late teens and early 20s. I'd have no dream. And a purple Lamborghini downstairs and a boat on the harbour and all these kind of things, it just sits there and it's just normal stuff now, which is, um, yeah, you've still got to pinch yourself, I guess, in a way. While other investors skip out on buying fancy cars or depreciating assets, Gray interestingly explains that he rewards himself with these things for a reason. So with the Porsche thing then, a lot of people said, yeah, but you're using debt to finance luxury goods that are depreciating assets, which is true. But if my property has gone from 80 to 100,000 pounds and I've made 20,000, a lot of people would sell that and then go and buy a 20,000 pound car. And they think they've made 20 grand and that's good, but then they haven't got an asset. Whereas by me accessing, and I think I borrowed 10 to 15,000 pounds, then I still kept that 100 grand property, which then grew to 110 and 120. So I was still making that. So even if I sold it at any time, at least I'd still have the equity there. So I wasn't kind of chewing up too much equity, but the main thing was I still kept the appreciating asset. And that was going up by more than the depreciating asset or the car was actually going down. Mm, so therefore, your asset was making more money than your depreciation liability, which obviously makes more sense because even if you sold your, your Porsche that was holding a value, you still get money back anyway and the cost or the coverage of your asset would be able to pay that off eventually. Exactly. And so I think this is a really strong point to make is I'm very much a believer in rewarding yourself as you go. Mm. So I got into massive debt at 22 and at 24, and I think at 24, when I bought the second property, I then refinanced and then bought the uh, bought the Porsche, and it's to reward yourself. So, so sure, I hadn't worked physically hard, but I worked mentally hard to suddenly have two assets that were worth maybe 200,000 pounds in the UK then um, at 24, and why not then take the money off the table at the same time as well? Yeah. So thanks. Don't save it all up, don't squander it all, but there's a bit of a balance in between. Reflecting over his current portfolio, Greg talks about the importance of having balance in enjoying the journey he has ahead. I guess my next goal is really just having enough of a buffer. So I'm probably about 60% geared on my portfolio Um, and I guess I, I really wanted to get down to about 50 to then have 30% of buffer, ideally in cash, so that no matter what happened with interest rates rising or if I completely stopped work and didn't have any income coming in, then I kind of wanted enough cash for maybe 10 or 15 years that I didn't have to worry about no, no matter what. But look, I mean, if, if interest rates did suddenly double to 10 or 12%, then my cash flow position would be massively changed. Um, I think I'd still be still be fine because I, in my book, I still work on interest rates of seven, eight, and nine percent. So I do kind of stress test myself, but I'd just rather have a lot more excess buffer, excess cash, just to counter anything that might happen in the future. Um, and so that that's the next thing on my uh, on my to do list, which is again part of a journey that will probably take another one or two years or something like that. And the importance of realizing that success isn't about having a bigger six-digit figure in your bank compared to someone else, but by simply being able to live life within your means and being grateful for what you've gained so far. 
part of it's greed. So say say the market goes up 10%, so I make, say, one and a half million. And if I can give 80%, then I can maybe pull $1.2 million out in cash subject to serviceability. Now, it would be very tempting to go and buy another $5 million worth of property with that and obviously mm. gear that million up to um, uh, by 80%. But what I've learned is it's whether you've got 10, 20, 30, 40 million, after you get to a certain point, you don't really do much more with the money. It is then quite often a greed thing or just a, a, a tally score against someone else. So I would rather have 15 million in property and 30 million in cash than have 20 million in property and no cash in the bank. Mm. Because if interest rates go um, up or the market crashes or all of these things, which I don't think are going to happen, then the whole house of cards could all fall down like dominoes and then suddenly you're, you're, you're left with nothing. And so I'm trying not to be greedy and trying to be grateful for what I've got and trying to be more conservative to then say, no, look, I'd rather have the 15 million and, and build up a couple of million in, in spare equity or spare cash than constantly trying to be 20 million or 30 million or 40 million. Because um, say my car is, um, was a three quarters of a million dollar Lamborghini. Now it's, um, I bought it um, eight or nine years old for two fifty. It's now worth maybe three three fifty. So it's actually kind of come up the curve and is almost starting to increase now. Sure, I've loved the latest Aventador, which is a million dollars for a convertible. I can afford to buy one, but I, I can't justify one. And so, if I've really kept pushing myself, sure I could afford a brand new car, and I could afford a much better place to live and a brand new boat or something like that. But the incremental satisfaction you get from going from a 10-year-old car to a brand new one is very, very small. And whether you're in a $5 million home or 7 or $10 million, again, it doesn't really change. It changes massively from a half million dollar home to a million or a half million to two million, but the difference between a 5 and a $7 million home doesn't make that much difference. And so, again, it's just trying to learn from these other people to say, if you constantly keep pushing the limits, at some point it's all going to crack and, and something's going to go wrong. Thank you to Chris Gray, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more stories like this, visit propertyinvestory.com.